Blair stirred uneasily, his little bony fingers wriggling under the harsh light. Little brown freckles on his knuckles slid back and forth as the tendons under the skin twitched. He pulled aside a bit of the tarpaulin and looked impatiently at the dark, ice-bound thing inside. MacReady's big body straightened somewhat. He'd ridden the rocking, jarring steam tractor 40 miles that day, pushing on to Big Magnet here. Even his calm will had been pressed by the anxiety to mix again with humans. It was lone and quiet out there in secondary camp, where a wolf wind howled down from the pole. Wolf wind howling in his sleep, winds droning and the evil, unspeakable face of that monster leering up as he'd first seen it through clear blue ice with a bronze ice axe buried in its skull. The giant meteorologist spoke again. The problem's them. Blair wants to examine the thing, thaw it out, make micro slides of its tissues and so forth. And Norris doesn't believe that is safe. Blair does. Dr. Copper agrees pretty much with Blair. Norris is a physicist, of course, not a biologist, but he makes a point I think we all should hear. Blair has described the microscopic life forms biologists find living, even in this cold and inhospitable place. They freeze every winter and thaw every summer for three months and live. And the point Norris makes is they thaw and live again. There must have been microscopic life associated with this creature. There is with every living thing we know. And Norris is afraid that we may release a plague, some germ disease unknown to Earth, if we thaw those microscopic things that have been frozen there for 20 million years. Now, Blair admits that such microlife might retain the power of living. Such unorganized things as individual cells can retain life for unknown periods when solidly frozen. The beast itself is as dead as those frozen mammoths they find in Siberia. Organized, highly developed life forms can't stand that treatment, but microlife could. Norris suggests that we may release some disease form that man, never having met it before, will be utterly defenseless against. And Blair's answer is that there may be such still-living germs, but that Norris has the case reversed. They are utterly non-immune to man. Our life chemistry probably, probably, the little biologist's head lifted in a quick bird-like motion. The halo of gray hair about his bald head ruffled as though angry. <laughs> One look, I know, MacReady acknowledged. The thing's not earthly. It does not seem likely that it can have a life chemistry sufficiently like ours to make cross-infection remotely possible. Now, I would say there's no danger. MacReady looked toward Dr. Copper. The physician shook his head slowly. None whatever he asserted confidently. Man cannot infect or be infected by germs that live in such comparatively close relatives as the snakes. And they are, I assure you, his clean-shaven face grimaced uneasily, much nearer to us than that. Vance Norris moved angrily. He was comparatively short in this gathering of big men, some five feet eight, and his stocky, powerful build tended to make him seem shorter. His black hair was crisp and hard, like short steel wires, and his eyes were the gray of fractured steel. 
If MacReady was a man of bronze, Norris was all steel. His movements, his thoughts, his whole bearing had the quick, hard impulse of steel spring. His nerves were steel, hard, quick-acting, swift corroding. He was decided on his point now, and he lashed out in its defense, with a characteristic quick, clipped flow of words. Different chemistry be damned. That thing may be dead, or by God it may not. But I don't like it. Damn it, Blair, let them see the foul thing, and decide for themselves whether they want that thing thawed out in this camp. Thawed out, by the way. That's got to be thawed out, in one of the shacks tonight, if it is thawed out. Somebody, who's watchman tonight? Magnetic, oh, uh, Conant. Cosmic rays tonight. Well, you get to sit up with that 20 million year old mummy of his. Unwrap it, Blair. How the hell can they tell what they're buying if they can't see it? It may have a different chemistry. I don't know what else it has, but I know it has something I don't want. If you can judge by the look on its face, it isn't human, so maybe you can't. It was annoyed when it froze. Annoyed, in fact, is just about as close an approximation of the way it felt as crazy, mad, insane hatred. But neither one touches the subject. And how the hell can these birds tell what they're voting on? They haven't seen those three red eyes and the blue hair like crawling worms. Crawling, damn, it's crawling there in the ice right now. Nothing Earth ever spawned had the unutterable sublimation of devastating wrath that this thing let loose in its face when it looked around this frozen desolation 20 million years ago. Mad? It was mad, clear through, searing, blistering mad. Hell, I've had bad dreams ever since I looked at those three red eyes. Nightmares. Dreaming the thing thawed out, came to life, that it wasn't dead or even wholly unconscious all those 20 million years. Just, just slowed, waiting. Waiting. You'll dream, too, while that damned thing that Earth wouldn't own is dripping, dripping in the cosmos house tonight. And Conant, Norris whipped toward the cosmic ray specialist, won't you have fun sitting up all night in the quiet, wind whining above, and that thing, dripping. He stopped for a moment and looked around. I know, that's not science, but this is. It's psychology. You'll have nightmares for a year to come. Every night since I looked at that thing, I've had them. That's why I hate it. Sure I do, I don't want it around. Put it back where it came from and let it freeze for another 20 million years. I had some swell nightmares, that it wasn't made like we are, which is obvious, but of a different kind of flesh, that it really can control, that it can change its shape and look like a man, and wait to kill and eat. That's not a logical argument, I know it isn't. The thing isn't earth logic anyway. Maybe it has an alien body chemistry, and maybe its bugs do have a different body chemistry, a germ might not stand that, but Blair and Copper. How about a virus? That's just an enzyme molecule, you've said. That wouldn't need anything but a protein molecule of any body to work on. And how are you so sure that of the million varieties of microscopic life it may have, none of them are dangerous? How about diseases like hydrophobia, rabies? That attacks any warm-blooded creature, whatever its body chemistry may be. And parrot fever. Have you a body like a parrot, Blair? And plain rot, 
gangrene, necrosis. That isn't choosy about body chemistry. Blair looked up from his puttering long enough to meet Norris's angry gray eyes for an instant. So far, the only thing you've said this thing gave off that was catching was dreams. I'll go so far as to admit that. An impish, slightly malignant grin crossed the little man's seamed face. I had some too. So, it's dream infectious. No doubt an exceedingly dangerous malady. So far as your other things go, you have a badly mistaken idea about viruses. In the first place, nobody has shown that the enzyme molecule theory, and that alone, explains them. And in the second place, when you catch tobacco mosaic or wheat rust, let me know, a wheat plant is a lot nearer your body chemistry than this other world creature is. And your rabies is limited, strictly limited. You can't get it from nor give it to a, a wheat plant or a fish, which is a collateral descendant of a common ancestor of yours, which this, Norris, is not. Blair nodded pleasantly towards the tarpaulined bulk on the table. Well, thaw the damn thing in a tub of formalin if you must thaw it. I've suggested that, and I've said there would be no sense in it. You can't compromise. Why did you and Commander Gary come down here to study magnetism, hmm? Why weren't you content to stay at home? There's magnetic force enough in New York. Look, I could no more study the life this thing once had from a formalin-pickled sample than you could get the information you wanted back in New York. And if this one is so treated, never in all time to come, can there be a duplicate? The race it came from must have passed away in the 20 million years it lay frozen, so that even if it came from Mars then, we'd never find its like. And the ship is gone. Well, there's only one way to do this, and that is the best possible way. It must be thawed slowly, carefully, and not informally. Commander Gary stood forward again, and Norris stepped back, muttering angrily. I think Blair is right, gentlemen. What do you say? Conant grunted. Well, it sounds right to us, I think, only perhaps he ought to stand watch over it while it's thawing. He grinned ruefully, brushing a stray lock of ripe cherry hair back from his forehead. A swell idea, in fact, if he sits up with his jolly little corpse. Gary smiled slightly. A general chuckle of agreement rippled over the group. I should think any ghost it may have had would have starved to death if it hung around here that long, Conant, Gary suggested. And you look capable of taking care of it. Iron Man Conant ought to be able to take out any opposing players still. Conant shook himself uneasily. I'm not worrying about ghosts. Let's see that thing. I Eagerly, Blair was stripping back the ropes. A single throw of the tarpaulin revealed the thing. The ice had melted somewhat in the heat of the room and it was clear and blue as thick, good glass. It shone wet and sleek under the harsh light of the unshielded globe above. The room stiffened abruptly. It was face up there on the plain, greasy planks of the table. The broken half of the bronze ice axe was still buried in the queer skull. Three mad, hate-filled eyes blazed up with a living fire, bright as fresh-spilled blood, from a face ringed with a writhing, loathsome nest of worms, blue, mobile worms that crawled where hair should grow. Van Wall, six feet and two hundred pounds of ice-nerved pilot, gave a queer strangled gasp and butted, stumbled his way out to the corridor. Half the company broke for the doors. The others stumbled away from the table. McCready stood at one end of the table watching them. His great body planted solid 
on his powerful legs. Norris, from the opposite end, glowered at the thing with smoldering heat. Outside the door, Gary was talking with half a dozen of the men at once. Blair had a tack hammer. The ice that cased the thing sloughed crisply under its steel claw as it peeled from the thing it had cased for 20,000,000 years. Cluck, reported the cosmic ray counter. Cluck, brrrp, cluck. Conant started and dropped his pencil. Damnation. The physicist looked toward the far corner, back at the Geiger counter on the table near that corner, and crawled under the desk at which he had been working to retrieve the pencil. He sat down at his work again, trying to make his writing more even. It tended to have jerks and quavers in it in time with the abrupt, proud hen noises of the Geiger counter, the muted whoosh of the pressure lamp he was using for illumination, the mingled gargles and bugle calls of a dozen men sleeping down the corridor in Paradise House formed the background sounds for the irregular clucking noises of the counter, the occasional rustle of falling coal in the copper-bellied stove, and a soft, steady drip, drip, drip from the thing in the corner. Connett jerked a pack of cigarettes from his pocket, snapped it so that a cigarette protruded, and jabbed the cylinder into his mouth. The lighter failed to function, and he pawed angrily through the pile of papers in search of a match. He scratched the wheel of the lighter several times, dropped it with a curse, and got up to pluck a hot coal from the stove with the coal tongs. The lighter functioned instantly when he tried it on returning to the desk. The counter ripped out a series of clucking guffaws as a burst of cosmic rays struck through to it. Connor turned to glower at it and tried to concentrate on the interpretation of data collected during the past week. The weekly summary he gave up and yielded to curiosity or nervousness. He lifted the pressure lamp from the desk and carried it over to the table in the corner. Then he returned to the stove and picked up the coal tongs. The beast had been thawing for nearly 18 hours now. He poked at it with an unconscious caution. The flesh was no longer hard as armor plate, but had assumed a rubbery texture. It looked like wet, blue rubber, glistening under droplets of water, like little round jewels in the glare of the gasoline pressure lantern. Connett felt an unreasoning desire to pour the contents of the lamp's reservoir over the thing in its box and drop the cigarette into it. The three red eyes glared up at him sightlessly, the ruby eyeballs reflecting murky, smoky rays of light. He realized vaguely that he had been looking at them for a very long time, even vaguely understood that they were no longer sightless. But it did not seem of importance, of no more importance than the labored, slow motion of the tentacular things that sprouted from the base of the scrawny, slowly pulsing neck. Conant picked up the pressure lamp and returned to his chair. He sat down, staring at the pages of mathematics before him. The clucking of the counter was strangely less disturbing. The rustle of the coals in the stove 
no longer distracting. The creak of the floorboards behind him didn't interrupt his thoughts as he went about his weekly report in an automatic manner, filling in columns of data and making brief summarizing notes. The creak of the floorboard sounded nearer. That was chapters two and four of Who Goes There, written by John W. Campbell in 1938. The alien in the story goes on not only to invade the dreams of the men at the Antarctic Science Station, but also it invades their bodies, creating almost perfect duplicates and living through them. With me today are Mark Sinker, my fellow host, and our guest, Sarah Clark. I think Mark uh, has read this story some many, many years ago, didn't you, Mark? I read the story, I would think, when I was about 10. And it was always incredibly memorable for me. There are particular elements in it that I remember enor- I remembered over you know decades enormously clearly, even though I'd stopped reading science fiction when I was 12 or 13 and didn't really come back to it until I was in my late 30s, probably. What was it that stayed with you? I remember the, the, it being blue with three red eyes. I remember the, it, later in the story when they're testing to see which humans have become aliens. They, they do a test with a hot wire and blood. Yes. And I remember the blood crawling away from the, from the hot wire and screaming. Yeah. And then the, uh, the human who's been proved as a result of this test to be an alien suddenly turning into the monster with three eyes and, and being attacked. And then being instantly set upon by the rest of the... I don't... I mean, there's bits I remember much more clearly and I remember it attacking rather than it being attacked, which, reading the story now, it's actually somewhat more passive. It it spends more time mewling and giggling than it does actually... It doesn't really... And sort of absorbing in a quiet, sort of off-screen way. Well, part of the part of the plot of the story, and which the men refer to in the story several times, is... Um, that it can't just kill everyone because it needs human hosts to survive. So it does sort of hang back a bit and let people wonder it's, about it. It sneaks into, into there's, there's all those men sleeping in Paradise House, and that's it, you know, little light goes on its head. Men sleeping in Paradise House. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, do you want to add anything to that? No, I wasn't too sure about that. I I suppose it's only going for humans because it thinks that they're the most adaptable and there's more potential to be able to get out and maybe infect more more people in a, I don't know, is it sort of parasitic in this way? I mean, first it went for the dogs, and then, because it touched them first, I suppose, it, so it's touch which transfers one thing to another. Then it went for cows and then thought, hmm, well, cows, cows are a bit useless, can't really do anything with those. <laughs> and they're all shackled up, too. And just, you know. <laughs> Yeah, but then they just sort of melt and dissolve away. And they say in the book, oh, well, surely the thing maybe just dissolved under a door or something. Oh, no, it's got away. Mm. And then they make an excuse for why that hasn't happened. And I didn't quite understand that. Yeah, so that, that bothered you a bit? Uh, a little bit, but not... The thing that confused me the most, which I mentioned before, was um, how the the monster or the, the thing seems to be dormant in people. I couldn't quite tell from the books whether people who have been infected somehow by the thing which I didn't understand because if it has to touch them there appear to be a lot of them which have been touched by the thing but I'm not sure where that could have it's taken It's never place. really clear. It's never clear. I, it's never quite explained how the infection actually happens. Yeah, but, but when the guy says, right, okay you guys, here's, here's the hot blood wire test. Um, oh, but you're reading my mind, you bastards. You know what I'm going to do. 
and then there's no reaction. They all just sort of stand about and wait for the test to come to them rather than immediately. Because if they could all read his mind, then it would be obvious for them all to turn into scary tentacle monsters at that mm-hmm. point, overpower the others or assimilate them. It would be really easy. And instead, they just wait for it to be proved that they are monsters. So that makes me think that they don't know they're monsters yet and that it's somehow just pending inside them. And I can't understand particularly why... I can't understand the logic behind that. Did that bother you too, Mark? Well, I'm not sure if it bothered me, because I think in a way, I think that's the the uneasiness of the story is... I mean, there's a, there's a little section where one of the one of the men um, goes mad with fear and yeah. gets murdered as a result of of screaming all screaming and religious praying and singing all night. One of the other men loses his cool, well, you know, loses it and stabs him in the throat. And and, and, and previous to that, several several uh, other a people couple have of gone other mad. people have gone mad. Yeah, but he was the thing then. But he was the thing, and so was the person who killed him. When you actually count up the names at the end, Clark is the thing as well. Um, Kinner, who's the cook who goes mad and and religious, gets stabbed in the throat, and the person who stabs him in the throat is confesses it is Clark, and they all say Clark is the only he's he's the only he's proved he's human by murdering someone, and then it later it just quick you know when it's naming the people who were things clark is one too and so i think i think you're absolutely right and i think actually this is a a kind of deep cleverness of the story the imitation uh instinct in the thing is so strong that it does actually imitate people so much that they don't know yeah they think until until they get under such kind of existential threat by an electric cattle prod or whatever it is then some instinct takes over and they start to mutate. Yeah, it, it does say at the start that it would have imitated, uh, what's it, Connor's or Connor's thoughts. Connor's, yeah. yeah. Um, I think why how it's different when they take the blood out is that the blood isn't sort of as developed as the full brain that's working in the people, so it's just got this gut reaction to, oh no, it's a hot wire, this can hurt me. Although, I don't know why, just a blood cell touching a hot wire, I mean, would it kill? What are the motile uh, processes there by which the blood is, <laughs> is scurrying away from the wire? Well, yes, I, I think... It just the... sort of flinches and... There's, I don't know. They there's some interesting um, sort of hand waving science going on a little bit. Um, the one of the people who goes mad, uh, no, it doesn't go mad, but becomes sort of you know of questionable madness. The doctor Copper suddenly mm. s- sits up and says, "He's in a delirium, sort of." He says, by the end. Um, "It's hellish shellfish." <laughs> yeah, and what's and then he says, "What am I talking about?" And goes back to sleep. And what he's saying is that the the thing is so selfish as a being that mm-hmm. when it splits it becomes two beings but the beings can't combine in a team so that actually a small blood sample thing can't sacrifice itself for the good of the community of other things which if they were humans this is the implication anyway humans and it's actually quite an interesting implication given that the arctic is the setting you know the most famous adventure in the arctic is Captain Scott's well, it's, adventure. It's, it's, and it's the Antarctic, actually. The Antarctic, yes, sorry. Um, is Captain Scott's adventure. And in that, specifically, one of the people on the expedition does sacrifice himself for the good of the team. And uh, unsuccessfully, as it happens, but it's a bit of a digression. <laughs> um, he, uh, the, so the monsters can't team up. And this is quite curious, because they do seem to have mind-reading abilities, but mm-hmm. they can read... 
the minds of the people they're going to assimilate. Mm-hmm. But apparently they can't read each other's minds to think, well, actually, mm-hmm. you know, okay, I am a thing too, but I am only a tiny little blood drop of a thing. I'm willing to go if you guys take care of the rest of it. But no, they, they don't do that. That's they, right. They yeah. will defend themselves in this sort of totally instinctive way and, a lot and is, then yeah. give away the fact that... A lot is made very early on in the story uh, as well when they're sort of hypothesizing about the thing. Um, and there it does seem to be a theme of organization. And they, they say, well, an an organized life form, um, there's no way they could survive being frozen, but uh, because it's too complicated, it's too fragile, and one presumes the implication there is it's too human. But um, smaller cells can live. and mm-hmm. it, Fish it, can, in fact. Some Arctic yeah, fish yeah. can be completely, well, not completely frozen, but severely frozen and then unfreeze and be absolutely fine. Do you see a, a metaphor there for the organization of the group of men that's that's there at the... In the in this version of the story, I'm not so sure that there is really mm-hmm. a metaphor. I think that he's hit on a fantastic idea, a new idea for an alien. And this is dramatized by the way people are responding. I think subsequently, one of the reasons this this idea is so potent is that different people have exactly thought, aha, metaphor ahoy. And so the first person to make it into a film is Howard Hawks, who loved films about teams of men like bonding together to deal with a situation and so that's exactly what that story is but he simplifies the alien into essentially a giant an intelligent carrot i think is one of what one of the people in the films describes it as and the team then has women in it as well which the original story doesn't. yes and we'll get onto that in yeah. a, in in a bit uh, there, there have been several movie adaptations of this yeah. uh, made the uh, howard hawks movie that you uh, just mentioned uh and perhaps more famously now the 1982 John Carpenter version called The Thing, uh, starring Kurt Russell. There are other television shows, books, movies, uh, though, that, um, while not explicitly this story, seem to take a lot from it. Sarah, did this story remind you of anything else that you've you've seen or read? Well, uh, you know, I thought it would more in a way because, um, well, I haven't, I've not seen The Thing, but I'm sort of aware of The Thing as sort of a, this sort of text so as a sort of peep, one thing taking over another thing and I had always thought that it was a very specific sort of plant-based creature that took over other people I thought it was quite Triffids esque and reading the book it wasn't so much like that mm-hmm. but there's a Doctor Who episode called The Seeds of Doom The Seeds of Doom The Seeds of Doom yeah where it starts off Can you pretty describe much that a, a exactly bit? the same as as the book um, you've got your Arctic mission bunch of beardy blokes all together who go out into the permafrost and they uh, they take up some seeds they don't know at this point that they're seeds of doom <laughs> they just could be otherwise they seeds. wouldn't dig them up obviously <laughs> i would i'd go for it to see what what would happen maybe doom <laughs> does it follow the plot uh, of of who goes there to 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 the initial extent, yeah, where they're arguing about whether they should revive it or not. Uh-huh. And um, in Who Goes There, there's a, it's a biologist versus a physicist, basically. Um, the biologist is all, yay, let's do it. And the physicist is, no, it will surely be atomic doom. <laughs> yeah. So eventually they do... And there's similar uh, arguments in the Seeds of Doom about, about whether to do this or not. Yeah, um, but eventually they they all come round. They just put it under an angle poise lamp, and then <laughs> <laughs> good good Doctor Who graphics there. And then it goes on 
to have people watching over it in the same way it, that they have in Who Goes There. And then eventually it sprouts and it sprouts. But it's, it does sprout tentacles, but they're very obviously plant-based. And then they take over this person who turns into this sort of green, um, ivy-covered being within a very, very short period of time. And in the meantime, they've they've sort of transferred their, their knowledge that they have this outside to to London, where the world is. And they, the <laughs> they've managed to communicate to, to London that, they, that this yeah. is going on. Now, that, that's a pretty big difference because in, in Who Goes There and in the movie version, yeah, the they, thing, there is absolutely no communication, yeah, which increases the off. sense of uh, sort of paranoia and isolation. Well, yeah, there's another thing. I think they... they I mean, it goes back to what we were saying about the self-sacrifice thing. They they pretty much realize from the start when they realize there's this huge potential danger. They cut themselves off. They smash up their communications. They mm. really hope that nobody will come along, not even the lone albatross that, that circles <laughs> at the end. And, they, and they're worried uh, they, they do this because they think that once the thing uh, latches on to something, it could just infect the entire world. Does, yeah. does, this, does the plant uh, being have a name? Um, it's a crinoid. Oh, crinoid, right. Yeah. So what happens next? Um, well, the Doctor comes along with Sarah Jane, who is... Um, well, there's there's two ladies in Seeds of Doom, <laughs> which is two more than, than in Who Goes There. And um, the Doctor examines the creature. The frustrating thing about it is that he obviously knows what the creature is, but he doesn't do anything about the creature for a long time. He just sort of makes sympathetic noises around the infected man, but doesn't say oh no, he's going to take over the world. And later on, the the, the recognisable man who's sort of turned into this ivy-clad mess turns into a huge kind of creature the size of a mansion, ready to take over, turn the earth into a flowery paradise. And the, a great, a <laughs> Or great, hell, depending <laughs> on your point of view. <laughs> but um, it, it turns out quite amusingly towards the end that, again, there's telepathy involved. But um, it's only telepathic with other plants, so it can control all the plants in the world, which is quite scary because then there's a, a fairly sort of slapstick scene where they're thinking, well, the doctor has to do some experiments. And then he's like, oh, no, there's, there's some plants in here. Take them out. And then there's about a five-minute scene with Sarah Jane ferrying at this plant pot <laughs> back and forth from one room to another, saying, oh, no, the thing will realise what I'm doing if this flower pot spies on me it seems to me that this that it does follow the plot like sort of up to a point but it misses it the, really does ape it right at the start but, i think but then, but it, then it veers on. off and misses the sort of crucial thing that uh i think so many people respond to and in, in who goes there which is this body snatching type uh, thing that happens where yeah, you don't know who your friends are i mean when it defrosts it takes over this guy and with the intent to turn him into a, a huge, giant monster on a big scale, he doesn't just try and stealthily disguise himself. He turns into a great, big, sentient Brussels sprout and starts <laughs> flailing about trying to crush a house for a while. And he, he doesn't show any signs of really taking over many other people, apart from the insane plant-obsessed guy who... But it's the pretty plant, much close there anyway. The plant-obsessed guy doesn't actually become another Brussels sprout, does he? No, no, none so, of them do. So it's like he can only do this once. The, he can invade one body, but that's all he's allowed. He's, he invades the first body, but I, then he's I not... I think so, and then he just starts a growing more and more and becomes an intelligent artichoke. <laughs> 
which I think is an actual quote. I did write some of them down, but I forgot to bring my notepad. <laughs> so it sounds easier in, in this story for the humans to identify us and them. And I think that's oh, part absolutely. of what, what makes uh, who goes there so um, so creepy is that people don't know who is us and who is them and who even am I. And it's said many times in uh, in the story, you know, how would I even know yeah. if, if I were if I were a thing. So th this seems to me, this story written in 1938, uh, a very new kind of alien. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about how, how, how was this alien different from the other kinds of aliens that people were used to at this time? Why did it take hold? Well, I think, I think that you're exactly right. I think it is, it's developing a new kind of idea about uh, a life um, structure that we might encounter that prior to that, aliens, I mean, in the pulp stories that that were being written in the two or three decades before that, aliens were either basically human, but they lived on another planet and sort of wore more skimpy clothes. Or they were kind of humans with like wings or horns or basically human, but, but a little bit different. Or they were kind of some form of animal, but with human-esque intelligence. So they were cat people or mole people or bat people. And, and where would pe people be reading these stories? Well, the, the main source for fiction, science fiction, was um, pulp magazines, which um, had been around since the 1890s in one form or another. Adventure magazines had been around, but they had, had only really become a specialist area in the mid-20s, I think, um, amazing stories. Hugo Burns Gernsback started Amazing Stories in 1926, I think. And prior to that, he'd, he'd basically, uh, his magazines had been um, radio spare parts magazines for radio hams. So they were about building your own crystal set, but then it would have a little section where there might be a story about mm. some some exciting story involving building your own crystal set. And then it turned into building your own crystal brain. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, yes. But but there was another there was another strand of them which um which had come out of sort of adventure and nineteenth century fantasy where the the most famous name was Edgar Rice Burroughs and he wrote a series of fantasies based on Mars and another series of fantasies based on a a realm at the centre of the Earth called Pellucidar. And were there aliens in these stories? In well, these... as I say, the, the aliens were somewhat. They were, if they weren't actually just humans with with non-20th century with clothes. With funny eyes. They were, yeah, they had some sort of... Occasionally you would meet monsters so so that you'd have possibly bat people or, or tiger people or something like that who were on one hand intelligent but on the other hand beastly. And then you would go a bit further and you'd have just monsters who were essentially giant spiders, giant ants, giant slugs, giant... Something which was, you know, some kind of vermin-esque part of our life, but but made much more of a terror. And I think what John Campbell... He, he, was, very, he was very fed up with what was, had begun to become known as bug-eyed monsters. Okay. Or BEMs, or BEMIES. <laughs> <laughs> Um, they had an acronym for that. They were BEM, so common. They BEM were, or BEMI because they were so common. And he was he he. There's a there's a nice quote from him in in Brian Aldiss's history of of science fiction where where um, Campbell says, you know, why would Martians want our women if if they might want them if they're humans themselves? In which case, they're not really aliens. They want women for the same reason we want women. But if they're mole and people, they would want. <laughs> you know gorgeous clever moles and we would be totally off the hook 
and and the other thing he said, which I think is quite funny in the context of this with the melting cares and everything, he said, and also an alien civilization is quite unlikely to come to Earth in order to enslave the humans to harvest meat from them because he said economically that's a very unsatisfactory <laughs> arrangement. There's much better ways of harvesting meat than enslaving human civilization. It's just not. So so, so the, the aliens of this era tended to do several things. They tended to want to enslave human civilization. Uh, they tended to want... Uh, human women yes uh and carry them off back to Ca their planet. carry them off but then given the sort of mores of the times and the way stories were written they would carry them off and then not do anything else yeah. so that the women would be you sort of leave them chained up somewhere yeah, yes but no, they were never actually touched or anything like that so th this this brings us on to uh something uh else i find unique about this story uh reading it today i'm struck by the all-male cast um, is there something in this, or is, was that just par for the course uh, for a lot of science fiction? I think then? I think the science side of it, the Hugo Gernsback side of it, was did tend to be very male. I think that was a very kind of nerd culture based around building your own machinery, and mm -hmm. and was a little bit uh, allergic. On the Edgar Rice Burroughs side, I think it, it's more it's more complex than that. These stories of, I mean, in some ways they're very naive, but they're also extremely sexually charged. Mm -hmm. And what had happened in the late 30s, when there was really a big kind of upswing of magazines dedicated to what we can now pretty much recognise as science fiction, that a lot of quite young writers who would go on writing for the next you know, three or four decades and become the grand old men of the field as we know it, began publishing their first stories, that these two elements fused. And Campbell was the editor of... Was called a te it was called Astounding Stories at the time, and then later it became Analog. Um, and he was very, he was very keen that that some sort of narrative logic be adhered to, which is why you know he made a fuss about like what would aliens actually want. And I think one of the things that's very interesting in this story is in, there's a sort of manifesto here for bringing in an alien life force, which is very, very alien to us. And then sort of saying, okay, this is this is its rules of engagement. How does the story go, given that it's like this? One of the one of the I think the big weaknesses of the story is a weakness of Campbell's own, which is that he was obsessed with telepathy. It, the only thing that he knew was a solid fact in all the world was that telepathy was true, which he may or may not have been correct about, but he was certainly was. And in fact. And the, the thing in uh, in the story, the alien can read minds. It can read minds, but it's not very really clear if it can do anything else. Because if it can, I mean, in this particular passage, it suggests he's, it's controlling comment. But if it can control people, then why can't it communicate with itself? As we were saying, you know, the self-sacrifice thing, if you can read minds and communicate. surely. Well, well is it because the other things that that it is are imitations? So it's only if it was in its thing state, then it could communicate with them but whilst they're another person they're a perfect imitation so so they're, the they're no longer too, so. they as a person you're not to yeah if you perfectly imitate a person you can't be telepathic because people are but you see campbell didn't believe that we believe that because we know better than campbell but campbell thought people were telepathic but anyway that, but for the purposes yeah. of the story <laughs> yes i i mean this is why i think this Humans is a, weren't telepathic i think this is a flaw in the story because he actually wants to make more of this and then, then it, it slightly spoils the thing we're talking about, which is this sudden 
tension between wanting to be the thing and and clearly wanting not to be the thing. And there are different responses from different people. And the, the interesting thing is quite early on, Blair, who is the first person to go mad and the first person to realise pretty much what is going on with the thing, does a kind of little political manifesto on behalf of the thing, saying that it, they are the most intelligent race that has ever been. Well, you know, the only reason he can be thinking that, his evidence for this is quite slim, is that they've asked him to say that, please. It's a broadcast on behalf of Thing Nation. Well, he's, Blair is also very early on, uh, he's able to put himself in the subjectivity of, of the creature. Other people are, are talking about how ugly it is, how horrible it is, how it, it clearly uh, grew up on a diet of roasted kittens. Literally, I think that's the, the phrase. And, um, and Blair, uh, Blair admonishes them and says, you know, look at yourself. I mean, to that alien, you, you're an ugly... Uh, ga like gas-filled, uh, pale, you know, uh, pale-bellied thing. Hmm. Um, so you know, think about what it it thinks about for a while. And this is clearly a bit of foreshadowing because it turns out that Blair is the most uh, thingified and possibly the first, the first infected. Well, I think uh, that yeah, at the all. end, he's the original thing. It, it's it's he? very unclear who gets who gets done when. But yes, I agree. I mean, he ends up being the most threatening because the others are beasts at bay and they only catch up with him as he's turning his knapsack into a hovercraft <laughs> and creating, like, strange blue lights in his shack. Are we spoiling? Oh, yeah. Yes, go ahead. Oh, for goodness sake. If the, for the most intelligent creature, his giant plan is to get an atomic backpack with, as I read it, <laughs> that he will jump across the, the ocean from the Antarctic to America with. And, and that's sure. his plan. That's his plan, An yeah. atomic backpack, <laughs> which will allow him to leap an ocean in a single bound. <laughs> and then, then, then what? I mean, that, surely that's extremely risky. Surely much better to maybe just take over an entire sort of native population of animals and then when somebody captures an animal, capture them, you know, slowly. But I, again, I think that there is a bit of, of not really, you know, despite it being Campbell who was very insistent on this kind of thing, I think it eventually thinking through the what does the thing do next, his plan seems uh, ill thought through. So something else that uh, this alien reminds me of is vampires well, it, it does it, the same kinds of things that vampires do doesn't it i think there's a very particular thing it does in in vampire kind of terminology as we now know it the, the word is siring which i think probably comes from buffy which is that a vampire by biting a person can turn them into another vampire and so vampires reproduce themselves in a relatively um, painless and possibly even playfully erotic way, which is, you know, just just a little bite. <laughs> and no, it's a very sort of sensuous way. I mean, this is where your lowest common denominator of poppy seed bright comes in. Um, I mean, in, in Who Goes There, the assimilation is, it's unknown, though. You, you've got no it's idea. It's totally off screen, isn't it? I mean, he gets around it quite nicely bit by saying it's an imitation of knowledge. I think there's a very sort of um, evocative bit in the book where he's talking about um, Kinner's howling of the hymns, which he does incredibly loudly, and it's driving everybody else insane. 
and um, after they've they've stabbed him, they say something like, um, "Damn beast, um, howling these hymns to a god that it never knew and a church that it can never remember." <laughs> and I think that's a really sort of interesting way that the that the imitation has sort of absorbed his experiences and is outputting them, but without sort of knowing what they are, it just knows it's there. There's a, in in the John Carpenter film. There's a, a nice analog to that, which is that uh, again, this is a massive spoiler. Um, there's a particular character who's a kind of stoned pothead who constantly makes jokes about aliens, even really before they're actually aware what the context is. He makes jokes about chariots of the gods and South America and things like this. And there's a particular point where um, the the monster splits and someone's head turned upside down sprouts legs and becomes a giant spider and runs out of the room and palmer the pothead says you've got to be fucking kidding which is the famous most <laughs> quotable line most quoted line from the film that's and, exactly what the audience feels at that, at yeah, that time yeah as well. exactly this is a, a real sort of virtuoso bit of kind of goofy special effects exactly designed to make you go oh my god it's a spider but it's also the most hilariously kind of <laughs> you know outrageous spider there ever was and then two or three minutes later it turns out that palmer the pothead making speaking on behalf of the audience is at that point also himself already a thing so that rather than being, as in the story, a religious maniac who can draw on all of this sort of, um, uh, all the hymns he knew and the God he never understood, he's he's a stoner. <laughs> and again, it's the it's exactly the same thing. And in, in well, the... Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt, but there's a, I think there's another part where they're on the great cull of the, the secret things. Mm -hmm. And one of them saying they've just had to set upon a, you know, a guy who every who everybody really liked, you know, the you know, the diamond geezer amongst them. <laughs> one of them saying, oh, you know, that guy I never thought it would have been him. I thought he would have been the 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 only one. He was such a good guy. Yeah, yeah, maybe if there was any way to bring him back I would. Two seconds later, his blood is jumping away from the wire. <laughs> he is also a thing, and they have oh, to set that's upon right. him. Yes, it's guess. The commander, Gary, says that of Conant. He says, this yes. is my oldest friend. I've known him for years. The, I think the underlying thing is that there's a sort of, they actually wish, you know, they're killing their friends, essentially. Mm -hmm. And in on one sense, they can tell themselves, well, they're not my friends anymore. They're already dead. But that's very hard to do when they they clearly have every everything about them physically and intellectually and emotionally is identical yeah, it's like, these are these are these are not gray-skinned zombies shuffling along the street or, these are walking talking mm, hilarious yeah. uh, people but, um, yeah. but with, they're not with crime vampires, either. i mean vampires generally have um whilst you think they've they've probably still got the the human you know, memories and elements remaining in them their sort of objection is to be evil in some way. I mean, whether it's they're evil because they think there's a sort of religious benefit to, they think of evil as a greater god they want to aspire to, or they're evil because they like roasting kittens. Uh, there's, there's still the purpose behind them. And because the thing is so effectively imitating the people, they, they don't have this, this purpose to them. And I don't know where where it, it kicks in that that this thing is evil, which it it's pretty obviously intended to be through the story and the and the thing the sort of original thing who's making his atomic backpack to jump across <laughs> to america and they they talk about this as being incredibly scary and incredibly horrible and um, 
sometimes not quite sure why. Well, I think, yes, I think this is why I think it's a, a well-written story because I think you don't come away thinking, thank goodness they got rid of that. You come away thinking, are you sure? Am I sure they did the right thing? Weren't they just kind of overreacting <laughs> and wouldn't have this been... No, I, I think you can see why it's it's probably you know, a bad thing to take away the, the humanity from somebody. I mean, that's a that's a scary <laughs> a scary bad thing. Um, but but he but he's not taking the people over and making them roast kittens. Um, he's no, he's just taking not... them over and they're and they're just wandering about making a cup of tea, maybe yeah. having a having a hymn. Well, I, 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 Watching it, cartoons. It, I think that this does get at one of the questions of the story, which is what does it mean to be human? If, if an alien can imitate us so mm. perfectly well that it doesn't even make a difference it's if I'm an alien question. or a human, then what's the difference? And I, th I think part of the answer might be in what, what Dr. Copper says about the, uh, in his delirium. He, he says, uh, Gary, listen, selfish from hell they came and hellfish shellfish i mean self do i what do i mean um, and i think he doesn't quite know what know what he means but um it seems like the suggestion is that uh what really is the difference uh, between the humans and the aliens is that humans are capable of being something other than selfish and that the aliens uh that the thing will defend itself selfishly regardless what i think is is interesting though is that i think you're absolutely right about that but the thing that the uh, element of ourselves which uh, enables us to to be not selfish appears to be lack of trust that's that's the the um emotion that they seem to in order to to bond together that's what they have to um rely on i was going to say trust in and it, so I, I think there is this curious kind of knot of contradiction which which i think is something you know i think there are some elements of the story he's not aware of which i uh, have been suggesting are flaws but i think this element of it is is very strongly something that that he realized in working the logic actually that's what it's about and when you read back through thinking okay who becomes a thing first and what's the structure of this it's really quite artfully decided who is likely you you know who's going to become a thing, and then you read back how they're behaving, possibly before they already are, but possibly they already are. And there's lots of um, you might call it deception or irony going on in the things they're actually doing and the things they're actually saying. When you go back twenty pages from when you actually know for definite that they became a thing, how they were behaving before, and I, I think it's something that once he'd hit on, I think he's written it in a very um, careful and quite witty way and in, in in thing world if the thing had uh managed to get away in his atomic powered backpack <laughs> and taken over the world what would be the difference between and and infected the entire uh the rest of the world with itself what would be the difference between thing world and the world that, that we know well i think one of the things which is curious once you start thinking about it is actually the, the darwinian effect of this thing would be a bit disastrous um it, <laughs> why would it you know if everyone became a carrot then actually ecology doesn't work so, so um, <laughs> I, i'm just trying to to figure this out because obviously is it blair who's um who's the uber thing i i think yes arguably yes yeah so his structure at that point is still i mean his physical structure is still blair's mm -hmm. but 
his mind is it, it's he's not imitating Blair's minds and thoughts there. It, it's it's the thing. It's the thing's knowledge. It's the thing's knowledge of you know physics beyond our comprehension. It's the thing who's directing his hands to pour you know, X chemical into mm-hmm. Y solution, and and that's different to to the rest of the 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 little things which only came out when they absolutely had to and so when he makes his jump to to the americas would they all be sort of conscious things or would they or you know would the thing touch another human and then Lurking, it's, it's, lurking thing? The answer is not in the story, but I. Th- yeah, I th- but what do you think? I, 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 one thing I want to get back to is is the difference between uh, our normal human world and what uh, th- the thing world would be like. And it seems to me that one big difference would be that reproduction, human reproduction, sex, would no longer be necessary. That's a pretty big difference. If thing world were to imitate human world, then obviously normal sexual reproduction is quite a big driving elements of that and you're right it doesn't need it because not only can it you know deliver all the children it needs but it can deliver all the pets and the house plants and the goldfish <laughs> it needs as well without having to involve anyone else in one hand it has this fantastically advanced kind of adaptive mutation ability but actually the thing that it's lost as a result of that is the idea of social intelligence um sh- do we want to get into uh to thing preg here <laughs> um oh, th- my uh, headphones just cut out there <laughs> what the that <laughs> element of it that we're all giggling about is that first of all there's a nearly legendary strand of um internet porn which is called mpreg which is pornography involving pregnant men and the pleasure or or fear or whatever that uh, runs through this story and and runs very much more through the uh, John Carpenter film is a fascination with this object, which is well very kind of vaginal in the sense that it's uh, giving birth to itself the whole time and kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, Squeaky. Well, the, the sort of, <laughs> well, the sort of the incubation process of it is what I was thinking because I, it came back to what I, I was saying before that um, you know where does the sort of gap between the thing and and yourself live and uh, that's a, a scary thing for for you know, a human thinking there's another person inside yeah. me. Yeah. Uh, no, oh, no. It's ha- this is there's another thing inside, and it's so not just inside. It is you in a yeah. way. It's, mm. it's absolutely. I mean, it's interesting that it is absolutely an unresolved kind of commit co- political and social dilemma in the world that we live. Like people who have other little people inside them. Let's talk about the Antarctic in science fiction, or and we can add the Arctic in there too if you'd like. Um, it seems to be a popular place to set a story. You've mentioned the seeds of time, or sorry, the seeds of doom, uh, before Sarah, and um, there's a, also an H.P. Lovecraft story called "At the Mountains of Madness," which also uh, involves a group of explorers happening upon uh, a crashed, uh, well, not a crashed spaceship, but an alien, an ancient alien civilization in the Antarctic. Is this there's... another all-male um, world? Well, if it's H.P. Lovecraft, I would imagine yes. Um, but uh, why is Antarctica so popular? I think there's there's two separate reasons for it. One is that historically Antarctica was very attractive to the Goths. 
uh, the Gothic movement was fascinated by essentially extreme terrain and extreme weather. And when you say, sorry, when you say the Goths, you're talking about uh, uh, Susie Sue or? <laughs> I'm talking about um, a group of artists and writers who emerged. It's actually called the Gothic Revival, um, but in the 17th century, okay. novelists especially. And and they they just loved, you know, they loved big mountains, glaciers, storms, the ocean. If if there was a tempest on it, all that kind of thing. It was sort of was there sort of a romanticism of nature yes, involved? Yes, it, it's a it's a an element of it's an early part of romanticism. Yes, but it's very it's very oriented towards kind of the relationship of the emotion to the backdrop. And Mary Shelley's Frankenstein ends. Ends on a bunch of ice floes. Ends, right? It ends in the Arctic, I think, rather than the Antarctic. Mm. But I can't, I, I can't remember which. Whether she goes north or south, whether they go north or south. But the Frankenstein dies, and the monster just strides off across the ice. And uh, then Edgar Allan Poe wrote a very strange book called The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym, which is a um, there's a boat travelling through the through the ice flows to the mysterious realm beyond it, which at that point hadn't been explored in real life, particularly that people had travelled around it. Is this part of the attraction of the of the Antarctic that uh, and the Arctic as well that it's sort of the last unmapped place? I think in the early part of in the 18th century, in the early part of the 19th century, it was essentially space before the idea of getting to space. But that was to say it was a very hostile, unknown area where possibly anything could happen well, I, I think the, the sort of deep 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 oceans have taken over as sort of the the space substitute now for, mm. um, rather than the antarctic what i was thinking it just occurred to me whilst you were going through that was there any sort of you know, the arctic is the end of the world there's this sort of journey to the center of the earth stuff here so you go to the antarctic or the arctic and this is a, a jumping off point so to say this is where your your new world begins there's more than we thought or this is where we get down into the surface and this is where well i i think that's that's exactly what it was and the thing about the interesting thing about the the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym is that the story is written uh, to break off and it breaks off just at the point where the ship he's on I mean it's it's pretty much a message in a bottle story and the bottle comes back and the ship is traveling over an immense cataract into the hollow earth and and the story ends there then Jules Verne wrote a sequel to it called The Sphinx of the Ice which I've never read and don't know anyone who has. And um, the Lovecraft story that you mentioned is also uh, the specific reference in it, in it um, to, you know, homage-type references to the Edgar Allan Poe story. And in the Lovecraft um, story, the beginning is quite similar to Who Goes There, that there's a ice research group and they come on an alien and there's all sorts of mayhem. And then... They go beyond this and they find this immense yeah. alien city. Well, uh, well, the Antarctic's got something in common with the with the desert. There, it's a place where you can find something from a very, very long time ago. Yeah, um, something undisturbed. Yeah, um, it's easy to sort of engage historically with with um, remnants and artifacts from you know the 1600s, 1500s, maybe 1400s or so on in you know, a newer country. That's a bit more a bit more bizarre. But with when you're talking about the Antarctic or the desert, you're talking about 
you know, the, the pyramids constructed years, years ago in the Antarctic, you've got this preservative element, which means that you can go back even further and further. And so... It's a way of time traveling almost. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and suspending, well, the future. Well, the future from the past. Huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah Clark and Mark Sinker. Next week, we'll be discussing A Pale of Air by Fritz Lieber, written in 1958. Thanks very much for listening.